there were big dreams, the dreams changed, and the focus for the city actually turned to, it's our nemesis here at the John Walter Museum, Fort Edmonton Park. <laughs> Hi everybody, I'm Chris Changin Phillips. I am Edmonton's Historian Laureate, and this is a live edition of Let's Find Out. Uh, it's a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi, Waskahigan, on Treaty 6 territory. Each episode, we take questions from Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. And this episode is called The Sign of the Fairy. Uh, so Raymond Mathias has asked us if he has really found the remains of John Walter's ferry. So he's unlocked what I think is a pretty cool story about how our city has changed over the last hundred years and what happens to the pieces of our lives that we leave behind. It starts on a sunny fall morning with all of you who've come to join us on the walk, so thank you. Uh, outside the John Walter Museum, in fact. So, Raymond, can you start us all off by telling this crowd how you got interested in this question about John Walter's ferry? Um, well, geez, thanks for taking my question. I'll start with that. Um, my son, I'm really sorry he couldn't be here today. Uh, he's nine years old, and uh, when he was four, we lived downtown, and every weekend we used to uh, ride the streetcar across the, uh, the high-level bridge here. And he was fascinated with all the train things, but I loved listening to the volunteers' stories. And the volunteers on the, uh, the streetcar would talk about the, the three-day stagecoach trips that it used to take from getting from Edmonton to Calgary. And, uh, but that trip started with a ride across the ferry um, right here. And so the passengers would have to like take their luggage and carry it up the hill. And uh, around that time, I was taking uh, a kind of a hobby filmmaking class. Uh, and I chose the streetcar as my subject. And somebody uh, did me the great favor of introducing me to a fellow who uh, actually drove the streetcar in Edmonton and drove the buses and drove the LRT. It was a really neat story. But he also said, if you're interested, uh, the ferry, you know, you, it's actually still there. And I, and I said, where, where is the ferry? Are you talking about the River Queen? And he said, no, and he gave me these directions. He said, you got to walk along the river valley, um, start at the... Uh, at the Walterdale Bridge, and then when you're walking down the path, look left. Uh, and so I came for a stroll here, and this is about five years ago. I, I took some pictures of what I found, and I thought this this might be fairy-like material, but um, the the colors on the wood were still bright enough that I thought it doesn't really look like something that's a hundred years old. Uh, so I, it was interesting. I shared it to a, a couple of my friends who might might like the story, but I didn't really do anything about it. Um, and then when Chris told me uh, where I found out what Chris was doing, uh, I I presented my question, and that, so I'm really grateful that you've taken it up. Yeah. Well, to start us off, I, I think it would be great to start with some background on who the heck John Walter was and uh, why he had a ferry. So we have uh, Jade Dodd here from both the John Walter Museum and also the Matar Conservatory uh, to tell us a little bit about John Walter's life. Hello. So, and hello everyone. Thanks for coming out today. It's always exciting for me when people are interested in history 
So John Walter, he was a fellow. He came from um, the Orkney Islands and he came here to work for the Hudson's Bay Company as a boat builder back in 1870. He came here and so while he was uh, working for the Hudson's Bay Company at the Fort Edmonton which was located right across the river from here and that was the fifth uh, fort uh, that had been built and they always tried to build them in this area because this is where the um, indigenous people were very active. They were busy meeting each other, trading and uh, and living um, in, this, in this area and so so when the Fort uh, Edmontons were built, they were built to try and capitalize on this location. Also, it was a good spot of the river because it was a very shallow part, so it was easier to cross and to ford and that. So, so John Walter he worked there for five years building boats, and then his contract was up. And he thought, well, you know, I could go back to Orkney, but there weren't a lot of prospects for him there. And he thought, well... I've made a lot of friends here, I've really settled down, I've got some roots now, and there's a future for me here. So he thought, well, I'm going to move across the river. And moving across the river helped him for in a few ways. First of all, back at the fort, they, the Hudson's Bay Company had taken like like 3,000 acres or something. So a huge area around the fort as well. So nobody was able to settle there anyway. So if he wanted to be on the north side of the river, he would have had to be quite far from the river. And he's a boat builder. He likes water, wanted to be near the water. And on this side of the river, there were still a lot of opportunities for him. So he came across and uh, started his, building his first house. And the Hudson's Bay, they loved him. Like they thought he was a really great worker and and a great guy and so they wanted him to keep building boats for them so they just kept buying more boats from him even though he was over here but this was a great place for him to work uh, doing boat building and then of course he had this other idea that if he was here he could help people who were coming in um, and starting to live on this side of the river as well they also wanted to get across to the north side so he could help them by building a ferry so he did that so that was in about 1886 uh, 87 he had started his ferry business as well we're gonna uh, take a little bit of a walk now um, and we are in a bit going to go visit this site and we've brought along an archaeologist today to help us look at this site too um, but uh, we're going to take a wander see some of John Walter's houses and uh, talk a little bit more about the context for the ferry and what it meant in early Edmonton So we lead our little walking tour group down the sidewalk towards a couple houses above the riverbank. There's a plainish white wooden house, another one that's a bit bigger beside that, and a sort of lavish blue mansion beside that. Jade Dodd stops in front of the smaller white house to face our crowd of curious Edmontonians. Let's hear a little bit more about these buildings that we're surrounded by. Jade, uh, what, what are all these houses? So these houses here, these are John Walter's homes. So this first building here, this one was built in about 1886. So this is that first one that he built right off um, after he came over from Fort Edmonton. And this house was his home and, and also his office. Also, he ran his ferry business and his boat building business stuff out of here. He eventually started a store in this house as well. And uh, his sister even came from Orkney and started living with him in this house 
from I think around 1881 and then after that he started building the second house so that one he started in 1884 and he was finished that in 1886 so this one here and these houses here when he went in and built the second house. He had actually met um, his wife partway through building that one and his wife-to-be, that was Annie Newby. And uh, she came over and they were married in 1886. Third house, way over there, uh, that one was completed in around 1901. And so by that time, you can see um, how much bigger it is, how much fancier it is. So by that time, they were very comfortable. They had, um, John was quite wealthy by then. He would had um, his very business, the boat building, but the biggest thing that he had started doing was having a lumber mill. And that was really profitable and industrious um, uh, for the times. So he also had a coal mine, carriage building, um, anything you needed. John was thinking, yes, yes, I see a need for that. I can do that. He was a real entrepreneur and a real, um, yeah, just always thinking ahead and trying to meet the needs of the people wherever, wherever he could. We have some little fragments of that time uh, that we could show people. Jade passes around some black and white photographs in wooden frames. And to flesh those out in a minute, we also hear from the curator of Edmonton's Heritage Collection, Heather Kerr, who... Full disclosure, is also partnered to one of my bosses, David Ridley. Yeah. Uh, these pictures are fascinating to me um, because my mental image of a fairy before I had heard sort of about this was the fairies in BC, the like gigantic ones. But for listeners who can't see these pictures, Jade, would you mind explaining what John Walter's fairies look like? Oh, yes. Radio. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so... These fairies, made of wood, because that's what John was happiest working with, I guess. But anyway, it's all he had. So, he, uh, they're flat. They have kind of, you know, like a, a fence on either side. So, just these small railings. Nothing, uh, nothing too fancy at all. And on one picture, there's a little rowboat attached to the side of the ferry. And we are all curious about that. And we're wondering, was that the lifeboat in case things went a little bit south? We're not sure. Um, but you see, Raymond has asked us this first question about the ferry, and it's actually led to so many more. <laughs> uh, and we have Heather Kerr here, the curator of the City of Edmonton's Heritage Collection, who's got a little tiny wooden model of the ferry. Heather, would you mind explaining what you're holding? Well, it is a model that was built for the museum just to get a better idea of how a ferry uh, worked. Um, basically, it's very simple. You have the platform or the, the scow. I'm not a boat person, so I don't know the terms. I don't know my aft and my fore and all that. Anyways, essentially it was very uh, sh low uh, not a, was it a flat bottom, so it could go easily across the river. It had an entrance and an exit, or an entrance and an exit, depending on which way you were boarding the boat. Uh, the second ferry that John built was much larger than the first, so the cable ferry was larger, so that a team, uh, horse and wagons, could also come on to the ferry as well and securely go across. So very simple in design. Um, John Walter employed quite a few uh, ferry captains and they were in the Edmonton stories quite the characters as well. So that's always fun to read about some of them uh, getting people 
across the river was a big, it was a big production at times. Yeah. Uh, Heather, while I've got you here, we're, we're looking at, like we're surrounded by all these physical remnants of John Walter's life. How, how rare is that to have this many um, physical pieces of, of a story from Edmonton at that time? Uh particularly in Edmonton, it's quite rare. And what makes this museum very unique is to have three of the homes that this man built. You don't see that very often. Um, and we're quite proud of that, to be able to offer the physical space to see how this man and then his family grew and evolved within the Edmonton community. And it's also a fantastic representation of Edmonton and Strathcona, how the communities grew as well, from more rustic all the way to a more modern home. So we, we use these homes not just to discuss John Walter and how he lived domestically, but also how Edmonton and Strathcona grew as well. They're great representations of it. So we're very lucky, and they are the original buildings as well. Pretty much in their original locations, though John tended to move his buildings around a lot. I don't know how, really, but he did, and uh, we're never quite exact on where the original locations were because they all had many original locations so yeah so so what would it mean if Raymond is right and we have found some physical remnants of that original ferry business what's the context for what this find would mean well Raymond's not far off because yes I'm impressed by putting together the context of it because unfortunately the story of John Walter and his ferry is far from our modern knowledge of the river and how the river was used. We're so used to having bridges and being able to cross the river without a thought. So even putting together the idea that there was a ferry here and associating it with John Walter's is a, that's a big step. That was good. That was impressive. And speaking of bridges, just for listeners, like we can just see through the trees, there's the old Walterdale Bridge, that green one, and then behind it, there's the huge swooping white new one. So as a crossing area, this is a pretty significant place. Historically, it is definitely. Um, it's not a stretch that John Walter decided to build a ferry service here. This is the... Um, the smallest, what, how do you say that? The ford, it's the closest fording area, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. of, of the river. So even before John Walter, of course, people were crossing the river. Hudson's Bay traders, um, the Aboriginal population, they had to get to the other side. And this was the best location to cross. Um, so here, building the bridges, so we have the first Walterdale Bridge and then Walterdale Jr., we like to call him here at the museum, the new bridge. Um, they make sense. And the Walterdale name is also associated, of course, with this area. Not only this whole Kinsman area was once a community called Walterdale or the Walter Flats. And um, there, were, there was a church, there was a grocer, and many, many houses down here. And essentially, it was the community of the workers that were either working in the sawmill, the ferry, there was also a brickyard, and the tannery as well. So this little area was known as Walterdale and was part of Strathcona. 
uh, Jade, uh, would you mind talking about this area and some of the, that historical context for it being that gathering place? Um, because it's not an accident that the fort was here either, right? Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, so traditionally, uh, the First Nations people of this area, they had a name for this area, and it was called Pehonan. And it's actually just even more across the river, right where the Rossdale um, Memorial is, and that. But this whole region really means the meeting place. And so, in the fall, people would come, and in the spring, they would come, and they would talk about, you know, where they had um, good hunting, where, you know, where they were going, because they were very nomadic people, and. And the um, the Dene from the north, and the the Cree, and then down in the south, the Blackfoot, and that they would come. Um, and then they would travel to meet and trade and and share. And like I was saying, being very nomadic people, they needed to meet up once in a while just to find out who's doing what. Where's their Where's their sickness? Where are Where are things going well? Where are things going bad? Who's going to be going where for the winter and that? And so yeah. So this is a historically a very very rich um, place and and people have been coming here for at least eight ten thousand years so Raymond we've kept you totally in the dark on our research process for this but we have already done uh, a look at the site and and talked a little bit about what we have found there so uh, we're gonna head there now to the the site that you found and uh, we're gonna have a look and, and tell you what we found out so then we head down to a narrow trail along the riverbank and end up at a spot maybe two minutes away from the house. This is all really close to the old green Walterdale Bridge, by the way, and the new white one. And since the new bridge has just opened, as we're recording, we can hear the construction crew dismantling the old one. If you hear the odd hammer or buzzsaw in the background, now you know why. Anyway, even though the ground is covered in yellow leaves, it's pretty easy to spot the wooden debris. Raymond, you were telling us about some of your um, memories of this site as, as we come back. What, what are some of the things that come flooding back to you as you're remembering um, finding this particular site, which we're, we're standing uh, by one of the hiking biking trails along the river. There's this beautiful leafy path in front of us. And then like, literally right beside the path, there's this wooden debris. Well, I... What I remember, it's funny in my memory, I thought I had to walk farther. <laughs> oh, we're already here. Because uh, it really did seem like a bit of an adventure. Like, and as I was coming down here, I'm like, what am I going to find? Am I going to be walking around? There, there were a couple of other things that the gentleman who told me about this site told me about, and I couldn't find them. Uh, and so I, I didn't know what I was going to find. But, it, you know, when I got here, it was um, it's kind of startling. Um, it, it looked like it could be a ferry, but the things that made me confused were the the color like you can see some pieces of the of the of the timber are, are, are green so I didn't know if that was green paint or stain or or what uh, but the uh, the things that were really interesting were the uh, the metal reinforcements and I, I think I remember seeing a pulley somewhere um, and that made me wonder if that was cable I, I'd never heard the story before about the actual cable across the uh, the river so those were a couple of things that I thought about all right okay well Luckily, we we don't have to wonder um, much uh, because we have we have a couple resources to help you answer your question. Um, one of them is Brittany Romano, <laughs> uh, an archaeologist uh, with uh, Tree Time Services. Uh, Brittany, would you mind introducing yourself and a little bit about your background 
um, just so we can explain why we have invited you here to look at this site with us today. Okay, so I am a permit archaeologist in the province, so that basically means that part of my job is trying to identify new sites and then register them. Um, so I do have experience working through uh, northern Alberta in the boreal forest and in the foothills as well. So we thought Brittany could help us explain what we should do when we come upon a site like this. It's just an, uh, an archaeological site potentially just sitting out here right, right in the open. Okay, so while I do register sites, you don't actually have to be an archaeologist to help register a site. Anyone can do it, really. A lot of farmers, people who just enjoy the outdoors, hikers, have actually found sites. And actually some very significant sites have been found by um, just people enjoying hikes. So one example of this is a site near Brazo, Alberta. Now this site has artifacts that have actually um, been dated throughout the entirety of Alberta's history. Um, currently, the Strathcona Archaeological Society has a volunteer project out there almost every year in the summer to survey. Uh, people can go out and find artifacts and it's volunteers that have found these artifacts. The site was first found by a couple who were actually just enjoying a day hike. They found a cache of knives and then they reported it to the Royal Alberta Museum who's now uh, studying the site in conjunction with the University of Alberta and the Strathcona Archaeological Society. So one of the first things that you do if you find a feature like this um, or an artifact is that we encourage you to try to leave it where it lies. Um, in some exceptions, if it's in danger of being eroded from a river, from the riverbank, or if heavy machinery is going to destroy it, then it's appropriate to collect it. But otherwise, we just strongly encourage you to leave it where it lies. And I'll go over the reason for that in a bit. Um, but what we do encourage you to take is lots and lots of photos. Now, if you can maybe take out, if you have any money with you, try to put something next to it, like a coin, just for scale. Um, and if there's any features on it. So if you find something like this, I would take photos of any of the metal bits. Nails sometimes are really helpful. Just things like that to take photos. And if you're geocaching, take a waypoint. Or um, look around, look for permanent landmarks. Like if we are right here, well, we have some pretty nice permanent landmarks in the form of uh, Junior there. <laughs> Um, and then when you get back home, you can either Google search Alberta Archaeological Survey Report a Find. Um, they actually make brochures to try to encourage you to report anything that you find. And, um, or you could go to the Tree Time Services Archaeology blog. And we actually have a blog post on how to report a find with some links to it. They'll ask for your photos. They'll also ask for your the location of the artifacts, so your waypoint, even your legal land description, other things like your phone number are optional. Same with the circumstances of your find. So let's say you did find it eroding out of a riverbank. Well, that would be very good information to tell because it means that the site might be destroyed or lost. And so once you do that, um, they'll assign the site a border number, which is kind of the unique identifier of that site. So um, actually this site here has a border number. Um, some sites will also have names. So this site's the Walter Dale 
site. Um, it consists of the the house and the settlement, but there's also pre-contact material. So they found um, some artifacts here that are very deeply buried. Do we, do we have some examples of what some of those artifacts would look like? Yeah, we do. So um, I believe what they found here, and I could be wrong because I didn't, uh, I wasn't able to pull the report in time. So right here, these are called flakes. So flakes are little bits of stone that have been chipped away when making uh, stone artifacts. So basically, they're kind of like the garbage. That's mainly what archaeologists deal with is usually uh, things that people have left behind. Here's a big, bigger example of a flake. So it's just, it might look like gravel um, to people if they haven't actually had uh, experience with it, but there are certain kind of characteristics that uh, you can start to distinguish gravel between a flake. Um, here I can, so this material here is called quartzite. It's very, very common in Alberta. It is found locally. Um, it's very hard to flint nap. Flint nap is making stone tools. So I can actually pass this around. It might look like little bits of gravel, looks kind of boring, right? Well, um, one of these material, I'm going to pass it around so you could get a look at it. It's very glass-like, it's shiny, it's sharp, and it's very brittle. That's called um, obsidian, and it's volcanic glass. Now, we don't actually have any volcanoes in Alberta, right? But we find artifacts made out of that here. So right now, there's a provincial archaeologist who's working with private collectors, and he's trying to source uh, the volcano that the material of their artifacts is made from. So he's working together with people and he can tell them if it came from BC or Montana. So there's some really interesting research going on. So here, I'll pass that around. Now, this material here is called Knife River Flint. It's kind of a, a brown, it's kind of clear. If you look at it, there looks like there's little bits of flex kind of like little bits of dirt in it. Um, we do find artifacts made out of Knife River Flint in Edmonton itself. This material only comes from North Dakota. And so again, there's some research being done on trying to, uh, to source this and to study it. So it can be, even things that you find that might look boring could tell you a lot of information about trade. So if you find a site and it's the only site nearby, well again, you're starting to put dots on the map and we can start to connect how people move through the landscape. So um, that's part of my job is trying to find sites. And one of the reasons why I was asked for here is I was working in uh, near Fort Vermilion for Mackenzie County and working in the boreal forest, you imagine I might come across a lot of cabins and I do. So finding a wooden feature, not that un unusual. But we come across this one feature and you know what, it kind of looked a lot like this, except it was much smaller. Um, the paint looked, uh, there was no paint, there was no railing. So what we did is we took photos, took photos. Um, they also had wooden pegs in the construction. Um, and then we came back and we did some research and you know what, the old ferry landing was less than like 200 meters away. So it kind of made sense that uh, we might find an old ferry nearby. There was tar chalking on it. So um, 
in the end, we ended up registering it as prob probably one of the older ferries because the, fer the ferries ran from around 1913 to the 70s and it couldn't have been from the 70s because the paint would have been fresher, they it would have been larger, there would have been more railings. So the construction didn't fit the time period of a later one. So that's basically what you would do is you would take your photos and then kind of begin your research and ask the questions, well, how long were the ferries operating? When did they end? And you do look exactly like Raymond did. Well, that paint, does that look new or old? Like that's exactly what you want to ask those type of questions. Uh, Brittany, what are some of the other clues that we have for the time period that this ferry is from visually? Well, the thing that really stuck out for me was the railing kind of over there and then the white paint. So I like, I didn't know anything about the ferries here, but it just seems um, too new. You can also look at cut marks, uh, something sawn by hand, it'll look different than something sawn by uh, a chainsaw so if you ever find a cabin or anything look at uh, the corners where you can see if it was cut if it's smooth it's more likely done by a uh, chainsaw than you're kind of hacking away at it with an axe so you look for things like that there are also some metal pieces like Raymond had mentioned what, what can we tell from those um, well for metal pieces like for nails uh, early nails will be handmade and they look a lot different than uh, ones that are kind of factory made. Uh, you can also tell there's some metal pieces missing, so um, it kind of seems like to me that someone may have taken them from here more recently. Hmm. Interesting. So some clues are pointing towards this looking like that other ferry that you had seen, but doesn't maybe have all the characteristics of a ferry that would have been 100 years old? No, it, the paint looks too fresh. It looks way too large. Uh, with the hand, the large railing there with the type of metal that it's made out of. Also, the ferry that I found had wooden pegs in it as well, so just slightly different construction techniques. Fascinating. So if this is a ferry and it isn't from 100 years ago, Heather, would you mind telling the story of what we were able to learn about this particular site? Absolutely. So our research usually as a curator um, and working in collections go and we go through the paper trail and our paper trail has led us to the answer of this now of course it's an interesting story i think um, the ferry is old it probably has had some modifications put on it um, this ferry was originally built according to the paper trail, in 1911, and was in service to 1952. However, it was not John Walter's ferry. Mm -hmm. So this ferry was actually originally from the Holborn Crossing ferry site, which from what I understand is about 40 miles that way, either upstream or downstream. What is that? Upstream. <laughs> Um, over by the Stony Plains Bruce Grove area. So how did it get here? Was it washed down the river? What is it doing here? That's, that's an interesting question. Why is it sitting here? So if you take a look around right now, I know we're on a bike trail as it is in present day, but if you go back to John Walter's time, it would have looked quite different. First of all, this would have been all clear cut very open space, um, 
the sawmill would have been in full operation. And the ferry, actually, the original locations, there were two because there were two ferries. The one, the ore-powered one, was just, well, it's where the greenhouse is now, so a little further down. And then the cable ferry, if you go look further down uh, where the high-level bridge is, that's where the ferry crossing was. So it would swing out and it would get you across the river, across the way. So this ferry, why is it here? It wasn't even the ferry crossing location originally. The city of Edmonton had wanted to build up this location, Walter Dale, and the three houses of John Walter into a historic site, into a museum. So the plans for that were underway early on. Actually, the city, even in 1939, put out the last perm uh, permit for residential here in Walterdale. So unfortunately, the neighborhood of Walterdale was in decline. It's, the decline started with the flood in 1915, which was devastating for any of the communities that were situated down in the river valley here. And the flood really wiped away, quite literally, John Walter's businesses and much of this neighborhood. It took quite a bit of work to rebuild the neighborhood and a lot of the industry never came back here. People were living here up until the 50s, um, early 60s, but the city had plans for the area, turning it into parkland and so forth. And also the Kinsman Center uh, started to build their recreation center as well. Um, in part of the work, they discovered the John Walter buildings. And it was the idea that let's build this into a museum site. To better understand John Walter, you really do need to understand the river and be close to the river as we are here. So they put out a call into the province for a ferry. And they had many communities answer because ferry service was in decline. And a lot of these communities had a ferry to get rid of. And like, yeah, sure, please come and take our ferry. And it was decided that it would be the, the ferry from, from Holborn Crossing that would come. And this is as far as they got it. And the plan was to restore the ferry this ferry um, and it has modifications on it because uh, it was in operation until the 50s I believe bad with dates um, unfortunately and this is the case for this little site um, the restoration work never took place on this ferry so they got it here it was banked there were big dreams the dreams changed and the focus for the city actually turned to, it's our nemesis here at the John Walter Museum, Fort Edmonton Park. <laughs> and all the interest and the city budget went towards creating Fort Edmonton Park as the historic site for representing the city of Edmonton. And sadly, the ferry was forgotten except for people wandering along the trails and going, wow, what's that? So it's... So, so Raymond, I think this is a good news, bad news story. 
<laughs> the, I think the good news is that you noticed. This is really cool. You found something that actually is a piece of the city's story and tells what I think uh, is an interesting story about how we remember and preserve what came before us. But maybe the bad news is that it's it's sitting here in the open and it uh, it looks all folly a party and starting to rot. Uh, Heather, um, I don't want to put you on the spot as the curator of Edmonton's Heritage Collection, but I hear that you are the curator of Edmonton's Heritage Collection. What uh, what can we conclude from, from how this site looks right now? Oh, that's a tough question, isn't it? Um, it's... It is a very difficult question. Restoration work is very costly uh, and it takes a great deal uh, not only for in terms of direct expense but also the maintenance and the sustainability and so forth. It also takes someone to champion it as well as we can see how things progress through the city and where a community, how it values its history on its built heritage um, and so forth. So. It is a good news, bad news. We have some wins. We have the city is dedicated to the John Walter Museum and our amazing houses that have great significance. And unfortunately, I guess the ferry didn't make it. Now, I get, it comes down to significance as well, I guess, when you're looking at your, your budget dollars. This ferry wasn't John Walters. It wasn't a ferry that he built. It wasn't a ferry that actually operated here. It had great intentions because often we need to have that touchstone to understand history. And I think the intention was very valid to actually bring a ferry here so that it gave a better understanding. Um, but to make this ferry not only restored, you'd also have to then start looking at the river valley, this area here, because if you restore this ferry, then now we need to get people down here safely and to have access and to be able to preserve it for a great amount of time. So the questions start to layer up. And oftentimes in this business, we have to start making those decisions of what is realistic that can be saved. Um, and what we have to perhaps physically let go by the wayside. However, we can ensure that we have things properly documented, which we do, we have in our collection files, and so forth, so that at least the stories and the intentions are still preserved. And that's why our archives uh, is a very important facility for the city, so, yeah. All right, um, well, Raymond, you asked us a big question. <laughs> And uh, how do you feel about the answer we, we were able to find for you? Come on, come on up. Wow. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, as you were, the last part of the story you were telling made me think back to the streetcar, uh, where I was originally hearing the story, because the volunteers also told the story of, uh, they actually restored one of the original Edmonton streetcars. And it was fascinating to hear the story of what happened to streetcars in the city. The city had pretty much abandoned them. And the, the streetcars were bought up by farmers. And some of them, including the one that was restored, was actually being used as a chicken coop. Uh, but a group of volunteers, they did their own fundraising. They sourced all the parts. And it's beautiful if you see it now. Uh, but it kind of, you telling me that story gives me 
an even deeper re respect for what they've done. And I, I, I get your point to say, well, if, if it wasn't the real deal, uh, you know, that's a heck of an, a, a hobby investment. But uh, I'm a little bit blown away by all the research that went into this story. <laughs> um, wow, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I hope you enjoyed the story because I certainly did. Um, if you don't mind, one more epilogue question for you, Heather. Um, what is likely to happen to this site now? To the, to the fairy? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's an excellent question. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Um, we are getting, of course, more interest down in the River Valley. So hopefully um, John Walters will be part of that plan or that interest. Um, I believe this is one of Edmonton's best kept secrets or hidden gems in the River Valley. And hopefully we can continue the historical research and knowledge sharing of this area, not only of Walterdale, but also before Walter was here. So it'd be interesting to see what, what comes, but I can't really say what's gonna happen to this ferry. All right, yeah. thanks Heather. Um, I have a sense that there are some questions coming from the audience. Um, are you guys okay to answer a couple of Q&A questions? If there's some, okay. Um, my dad, Dave Phillips, has a question. Would you like to ask your question? Okay. Let's, try, let's, let's stick to Start your most important. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, there's a site for reporting the sites, and I was just wondering if there's a way to search on the site to see if a site has been reported. Oh. Brittany, would you like to? So there is a listing of sites. Unfortunately, it isn't open to the public basically because of fears of looting. Um, there has been a lot of looting in the past and, uh, and damage to sites and everything like that. But even if you may have found a site that already has been reported, they can update the site. So maybe you found a spear point or maybe you found it um, when you re when we record a site, we also record the site extent. So maybe the site is 100 meters long by 50. Well, let's say you find it 50 meters away or 100 meters away. Well, then we can update that site and now maybe or maybe at one site we found one single flake. Those are called isolated finds, they're kind of boring. But maybe you found something else and suddenly the site becomes um, much larger and maybe more significant. So it's still good to update them. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> um, anybody else have any, any other questions for any of our guests today? Oh, v Vanessa at the back. With all the talk about Frank Oliver and his sordid history and saying that this was important to like the indigenous people of the area, what was the relationship between John Walter and the indigenous people and and how did was it, you know, amicable, I guess. <laughs> uh, do you want to take that on? Sure. Sure. I, okay. Yeah. No, that's um that's a great question and it's very timely when we think of John Walter, it's best to think of him as a fur trader because that's what brought him out to the area, unlike Oliver, Frank Oliver. So as a fur trader working for the Hudson's Bay Company, um, John Walter uh, was involved in that community, which was predominantly a Métis community, and of course with good relations with the various um, Aboriginal groups coming in for trade. Uh, 
So I always considered John Walter as a first wave settler in this area because he was a retired fur trader like other fur traders um, who retired who started to set up their homesteads or their homes in the Edmonton area. Um, I think it's a very fair, educated guess that his relationship with the Aboriginal population and also the Métis community was very strong. Um, most of the business he did was with the Métis um, other settlers. Actually, Edmonton, in this time that we're talking, um, in the early 1880s and before, it was predominantly a Métis community that was settling here. Um, it, his oldest friend and colleague was uh, Henry Collins, or Machias, who they met at the working at the Hudson's Bay, and eventually Machias came and built his own home here, um, just close to John Walter, and remained a family friend until his death. And actually, after John Walter had passed away, he stayed and helped Annie Walter, his widow. So I think from those things, I can make that educated guess that the relations were good. Frank Oliver, second wave immigrant coming to live here and had different uh, relations and perhaps different intentions on coming to, to this area, which I think changes the relationship. If there aren't any other questions. Um, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate you all coming out today. This was really fun. I learned a lot. Um, and uh, so I'd just like to thank uh, Raymond Mathias, obviously, for his question, uh, Heather Kerr and Jay Dodd and Brittany Romano for helping us find out the answer, and also uh, Curtis Blakey Burgett, Catherine Ivany, Benita Hartwell, Jessica Peverett, and everybody else who helped us do some of the background research and organizing and watching for cyclists today <laughs> and putting down blankets and stuff. Um, and thank you to all of you for coming today. Thanks. All right, this is Chris now, after the walk. We have some more thank yous to give out, but first we have kind of a mailbag section this month. We like hearing what listeners think, and this first one did not hold back. A listener on SoundCloud named Curry commented on our last episode, The Land at Hand. Curry said, The comment your guest makes at around 2320 regarding the new cafe being not there to serve the people in the neighborhood is unfair and inaccurate. That cafe is a tattoo space, hosts regular community events, and the entrepreneur is very conscious about being a member of the community where she chose to locate. Curry also linked to a Twitter thread that they thought was a good starting point on gentrification. So we'll link to that on the page for the land at hand at letsfindoutpodcast.com. And second, Rylan Kafara wrote in with more resources from Neil Smith and Daniel Johnson on revanchism and gentrification, and also a link to an interview that he and his supervisor, Jay Scherer, did on CBC Radio about gentrification in Edmonton. So I'll also post those on our website. Thank you, Rylan. That about does it for us. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. This episode was produced by Samantha Power and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. This is, unfortunately, Samantha's last episode of Let's Find Out. She's landed another big opportunity, and we wish her well. We want your questions about Edmonton history. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can find all of our past episodes on letsfindoutpodcast.com and basically any podcast player. Speaking of which, if you haven't yet, this would be a perfect time to leave a review in iTunes. 
no, actually, like you listening right now, did you enjoy this show? Do you think other people should know about it? Help us reach them by going into iTunes and leaving a review right now. Let's freshen up that review section. I also post on Facebook under Edmonton's Historian Laureate. Thanks to the Edmonton Historical Board and the Edmonton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast. To everyone who's supported it, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the increasingly lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. All right, that's it for this month. Until next time, keep your questions coming.